She's the wind beneath my cauliflower wings. It's Franny Choi. And it's raining them. Hallelujah. It's Nesmith. And you're listening to Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Hey, Franelby. Hello. How's it going? I am exhausted if we're going to be fucking... <laughs> we're going to be completely real. Um, you know, uh, we make these little evergreen episodes, but in the moment right now, we are like a day after the guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin and like the last like sort of week and some change here in Minneapolis has been cray. America has been cray since, you know, 1619. So I'm just like tired. And I think that is... um Maybe one thing I could say I learned from the pandemic, like even in like the midst of my like tiredness and exhaustion, I'm like fully present and happy to be here with you right now, though. You know? mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I too am very tired, but I can see like a future in which I will be less tired. Oh, well, is that true? Do Can I see a future in which I will be less tired? <laughs> I think that I, I see a future in which I will have the energy to be in the world in a real way, in an actual way. I suppose. Yeah. You can like be somebody new. This is what I'm realizing, right? I saw this like, I'm not going to say I read the article, but I did read the headline in the tweet <laughs> um, about that article that was going around about like, you can be whoever you want to after the pandemic. Like you don't have to like set your personality in stone. Um, Whoa. Yeah. And it was just kind of being like, you know what? Just like be somebody the fuck else. <laughs> Do we, are we all going to get like a going to college and getting the chance to be a new person? You can, yeah. Either, you know, summer 2021 or summer 2042, whenever the pandemic is over. Ooh, this is a question. Pandemic lasts for another 20 years, right? Horrible world, but... Oh. Uh, <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> okay. Why are you bringing this energy into my life right now? Right, so Wednesday morning. How about, let's say... Let's say five years. Okay, so pandemic lasts for, you know, an indiscriminate amount of time, either 20 more minutes or five more years. Who are you going to be after the pandemic? Oh, my God. I think that, like, best case scenario, I am, like, the Korean grandma version of myself that, like, wears whatever the fuck she wants. Mixed prints, print, print, print. Visor to keep the sun out of her face. And, like... It's just like her completely rudest, most standing in her truth at all times self at all times. Hmm. Um, That's the best case scenario is I come Mm -hmm. out like having aged, you know, 40 to 50 Korean years. But the most likely scenario is that I'm like the version of me that is like when you like foster a dog and it's clear that the dog has like been living in a like a not not cool situation and so you like can't make any sudden movements or else it'll like you know run away and bark and stuff that's probably going to be me you know like <laughs> like mo- most likely i will be like a very uh, unsocialized anxious matted fur kind of version of myself but oh yeah. we'll get you a little stress vest though you know yeah so oh my god please i would love a stress vest <laughs> do they make those because i want one i think you just gotta buy a vest and like a size or two too small. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just, like, just like an anxiety binder. Yeah, maybe it's like a waist trainer. You know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the same thing. <laughs> or maybe can I can I just get one for like a really big dog? Like I'm pretty small. Yeah, just buy a corset. That's all you need. It's like, <laughs> like I'm feeling stressed. Somebody tug me in. You know, <laughs> like agoraphobia corset. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> 
Um, what about you? What's the best case scenario and worst case scenario for how you emerge? Uh, my best case scenario is that like my Leo Sun Sag rising, like, you know, extroverted energies are just like, let's go. And like, you know, in a vaccinated world, I'm just out here like doing all the things and talking to all the people and, you know, who knows what I'll be doing by next year with all this extroverted energy. I feel like I'm just going to be like, like, I think like Ayala fixed my life. I want to be like her and like that kid's situation too because like I think she's often wrong but she's never scared to be loud about it and like she just walks into people's houses like I really vibe when you said just like being rude to everyone right I just kind of like want to walk in places to be like this is what you're doing wrong this is what you're doing wrong that's the only smart bitch here everybody let's listen to her and that's kind of just like the energy I think I'll have in the world which would be a little bit too much and too aggressive I'll burn a couple bridges and make some enemies but it's okay I think my worst case scenario which is also, maybe my best case scenario is that I never really leave the pandemic. You know, I'm still answering emails like eight months late. I'm just going to like lean full into like the Lauren Hill, like Frank Ocean, like school of artistry. You know, it's just like Denez has a performance. Y'all should like show up. Maybe Denez will be there. And I just like show up places in long coats and big hats. And it's a great gift for me to be there, but don't count on it, you know? And so I just become aloof. People are like, where have you been for the last seven years? And I was like, you know, I really wanted some pizza. And so I moved to Italy for eight years, Uh, (laughs) you know? And then I had, I like saw myself on a beach. And so I moved to Iceland and made a beach. Um, (laughs) I made a beach, made a beach. Yeah. I can't tell if that's the best case or the worst case scenario for you. I think that, yeah, it, it does seem like a little bit of both. I also love the idea that after we, it's over, I mean, who knows when that exactly will be, but like that some people will will be like, you know, we'll be like, hey, hey, like, where's where's Amy? Is Amy coming? And be like, oh, no, Amy's still in the panty. A- Amy's yeah, still the panty. <laughs> Amy's still in the panty. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And also, like, maybe people will be like, oh, I, I can't be there. Like, just I, I'm just like self-quarantining for the next two weeks just because. Wow. Wow. Just for like a little retreat. Just a little retreat. You know what's also yeah. not going to leave? Mask. I haven't been sick this whole motherfucking year. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, the reason that uh, East Asian people wear masks on public transportation uh, all the time has a lot to do with pollution and dust and climate change. But it also is like kind of a good idea. Yeah. Borrowing a lot of East Asian things now. I am wearing my mask all the time. I am running to class. I am... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you're practically Korean at this point. That is a bad stereotype. Not all East Asian people run to class, but I will say there were two East Asian boys in every school that ran to class and made that rumor happen. (laughs) I've actually never even heard that thing. Asian niggas used to be running to class, man, but it was only the nerdy ones. The gangster ones didn't do that shit. The gangster ones were ditching like the rest of us. But there was just like, uh, like always like like some little like nerdy Asian boy like like backpack kind of tucked and booking it. To the oh yeah, no, that's true. That's it's like, true. It's like yeah, that yeah. nigga is gonna make it to second hour. You can trust that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> shout out to you, nerdy Asian boy. Yeah, we love you. We do love you. Also, baby, like you can slow down, you know, or you keep going towards your dreams, King. You know. Aww. <laughs> you we love um, you we also love Carmen Jimenez Smith 
Yes, we also have Carmen Jimenez. Um, who, speaking of becoming the best version of ourselves, um, we're really excited to share this interview with Carmen Jimenez-Smith with you all. Um, Carmen, in addition to being an incredible poet who has been a beacon for both of us is also an amazing editor at Noemi Press um, as well as formerly The Nation um, and is also writing a book on revision and she talked about revision and the editing process as a process of amplifying the gifts of the writer rather than like stripping away what's not working just like making what is working sing louder and making the poem the best version of the poem that it can be. So, um, yeah, we're really happy to get to share this conversation with y'all with one of our favorite poets ever. Carmen Jimenez-Smith teaches at Virginia Tech and is an editor at Noemi Press. Her most recent book is Be Recorder. She is currently translating the work of poet Mariella Dreyfus. We're so excited to get into this interview with y'all. It's a banger. And here is Carmen, who is going to start us off with the poem. I'm going to read a poem um, called Like an Auto-Tune of Authentic Love. I'm watching an old movie in one corner of my laptop, and in another the shadows nesting in your neck, the flickering frequencies of your sweater. And remember the Jack Nicholson tagline in that movie we almost watched, then decided against fearing the little taser of misogyny? You make me want to be a better person. Sometimes the only thing I want to say is marry me, even though we both think marriage is archaic and weird, or at least for us. It's not marry me, I want to say, but rather weld with me like a net we also sit in. Oh, FaceTime face and shadow neck and the almost synced sound of our shared watching. You have a list of things that are going to be the death of you, and so do I which we cover in our debriefings. All of this is to say that distance makes my heart go farther into the terrain of heartfelt, and I love it, how ordinarily classifiable it is, like feeling literal figurative butterflies in your stomach, the good being fundamental. Surprising love can happen at any part of one's life, like the pixels deciding when to flicker into bursts. Oh, God. I love that poem. I Thank really you. Love that poem. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I feel so weepy. After <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But weepy, but also like, I don't know. I've just, I've been thinking about, ever since I first read that poem, I've just been thinking about that title, like an auto-tune of authentic love. There's so many like, it's like two steps of distance away from authentic love. Can you talk about that title or what the auto-tune means to you or what authentic love, not what authentic love means to you, but maybe just like, <laughs> well, how much time do you have? <laughs> just what it, what it, uh, what it. Let's no. go there. I like going there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess it is like literally the experience of, um, when my partner and I weren't living together and so she and I would like watch Netflix together and we had this whole thing. Okay. One, two, three, and we would hit, and then we would have like the FaceTime and then the, the Netflix screen and sort of like navigating between two of them and sometimes watching her watch and sometimes just talking to each other. And I guess the, the idea of the auto tune was you want the 3d experience, the AI experience of the person 
I guess that was maybe on the surface of it. I don't know that I can go very much more deeply in it, but just the way in which technology and love when you're, you know, in a long distance relationship have to work. But the fact that we have access to this technology of which, you know, that we can be watching something together and can be like looking at each other's faces. And there's something beautiful about being able to watch her face while we're watching the same thing. Um, mm. so it's, was this way that we had of communicating that was important for us to be able to just watch a movie together when we weren't able to be t- together. And so whatever synthetic experience we had to, you know, have it through was worth it. But there was always this time of like, wouldn't it be great when we don't have to like, be like one, two, three, and then like trying to like get the sound at the same time. There were all of these ways in which we're trying to simulate being together, and we worked really hard at it. So I think that was a big impetus behind writing that poem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that also like lots of people listening to this now can relate to that, like yes. relying on the synthetic <laughs> ways of being together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the almost synchronizedness, right? The yeah. always kind of being a little off. That, that, I think that like both like mended and broke my heart at the same time. <laughs> really. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Are there new things you're thinking about that concept of so many of us are are in this moment of relying on technology to feel close to people far away? I guess one advantage is the interesting possibilities of who you were able to bring together. So the other night I called my sister and a really good friend of mine, Juan Luis Guzman, and we did a karaoke party together. And it was just like Zoom and some app and it was just kind of random and arbitrary, but that's the thing that I've most enjoyed is the weird amalgamation of people that you can bring together. But overall, I've found that this has just been a very isolating um, and bizarre experience. It feels like it's been 10 years. It's been like, you know, three minutes. I feel like I've lost a sense of what real time is like because so much of time is how you connect with people and move through the day work infects your house. And so I feel like I'm always working. I'm never working. I have enough to do. I don't have enough to do. It's a really fucked up long Kafka play. Mm. Um, and so I'm eager for it to be over. I I, I, yeah, um, I have teenagers. My daughter did her freshman year in high school on, <laughs> on the internet. And, you know, she has her breakdowns, you know, just like, I can't believe that the best years of my life. And I was like, wait till your 20s. But I can't believe that the best <laughs> years of my life I'm spending on, you know, and it's true. We need, we need touch. We need proximity. We need to smell each other. We need to, and we don't have that. And so I, I feel very, very, very disconnected. I don't feel human and I'm eager to feel human again. Hmm. I was about to ask it like, does that what does that do for even your thinking about the work? Because I feel like human is even sometimes a question within the realm of your poems, right? But I've I've called this a very anti-poet time <laughs> because I think of all the reasons you've listed. And as a poet, editor, worker, in a time when work has felt impossible, what has actually brought you energy to work on? What area of your life have you found yourself pouring like, you know, your production energy into? What's been feeding you in that way? I think I'm most I'm excited to be around my students, um, to get back to work, to to have that collaborative energy, to learn about them. And I mean, I think teaching is such an intimate experience and, and I'm just not as 
eloquent or articulate in this realm. So I think that's a primary anticipation. I'm eager for my kids to be in the world. I'm also eager for them to be out of my house. (laughs) (laughs) That's the other part of it. I want them out. The fun thing I think that's happened and the thing that's that's really feeding me um, is because I haven't at all been able to write. I've been able to do a little bit of translation, but I haven't written a poem in at least a year is editing books. I've been so lucky to be working on some really exciting books over the pandemic. The pandemic creates this opportunity for lots of people to be involved in a conversation. And we have three people on a Zoom and we're all looking at the same Google Doc and we're going through it and having a conversation. I'm so charged by that. I love that collaborative practice. And so that's, I think, kept poetry and writing alive in me in a way that, you know, I can't even read it. I just feel like I'm crazy. Crazy isn't the right right word. I think Kafka, I feel like Kafka would be like, oh yeah, I I would have told you that this would have happened, you know? (laughs) Let's start using Kafka as a feeling. I feel Kafka. I I love it. Like, oh my God, this department drama makes me feel so fucking Kafka. It's so Kafka. It's so Kafka. When both the emotions and the time are doing weird things, it's a Kafka, you know? That's right. It's a Kafka. And it's and it's procedural and it's like dark and it's bureaucratic and it involves like forces beyond your control. It's Kafka. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. I, I don't know if I've ever heard of three people going through a Google Doc um, talking about somebody's work as a form of editing. And that seems like so fun and so exciting. Is that a standard practice for for you as an editor at Noemi? I, w- I would just maybe love to get a peek behind that window, because if I can just brag for a second, I mean, there are like a couple of presses that when you like hear that a poet has a book by them, you're like, oh, it has to be good. You know, <laughs> like it's like Nightboat, Noemi, you know, there's a couple of that you're just like, Oh, what the fuck are they doing? Like, they're on that press. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, so hurrah on building that press so much. Um, it's been so wonderful to also see not only the work, but, um, you know, a couple of like big prizes and nominations in the last couple of years that aren't the end all be all. But it's just like, it's good to see that name there and that press there. It's it, it, like some presses warm your heart when you see them on those lists. Um, what's behind the magic, right? How do y'all get those juices flowing? It sounds like y'all really have a standard for time and attention that you're paying to these authors and really trying to do their work justice. Yeah. So I I guess, you know, I started the press 20 years ago and at the time there were so few presses that just published people of color period. Mm -hmm. And then the presses that published people of color were just like, they're over here and then there's everybody else. And so part of my vision, I mean, I was 30, I didn't know what I was doing, um, was just like, how do you disrupt that? How do you complicate that? Over time, I think what I noticed, and I think I came out of graduate school, I just came out with trauma. That's all I did not, you know, and I had to sort of build myself back up and I had to teach myself how to be a writer and teach myself a lot of the lessons. And I was lucky when I was an undergraduate, I had a really great mentor who taught me a lot of stuff about how to survive in this world because I think there's a certain level of difficulty how do you make a book that is the very best book that it could be? So our, I think what we do at Noemi is we we come to a manuscript and we see the vision and the gift of the writer and we say, are you sure you're, because we see that you're not quite at, you know, maximum. You're at seven and we think you could be at 11. And so that conversation of editing is going from seven to 11, right? Is like, 
you are so good at this thing in this moment. So how do we like amplify it across the book is, is really like working with a writer to achieve the maximum of what the book can be. A big part of that, I think, from having edited books um, for a long time is just purely like a line level thing, like a sentence is a kind of information delivery experience, imagination delivery object. So how do we make each sentence sort of act in the most optimum way that it can. And so that's, you know, it does take three people to kind of go through. And and the other piece of Noemi is that it's a place in which our editors, including, you know, volunteers, and y'all talked to Susie recently, we're also learning how to write ourselves. And, and so it becomes this laboratory where, hey, my student wants to come you know, someone wrote to me recently and said, I see you're publishing this book. And I said, come into the one of the editorial meetings, you know, like you have nothing to do with it, but just come and hear what it's like to bring the book into the world. That's such a loving relationship to knowledge, you know, like I feel like so many editors, like you send your book to the one person, you know, maybe a couple people read it. Right. But it's such a siloed experience that's so open to the thought and generous, I think, to like, oh, my God, I love that. (laughs) Well, and it's also a book to me is written by a community. It's written by a group of people. And so often people of color are coming up and they go through an MFA and they don't know anybody and they have their book and they're like, no one ever touched it. No one else put their hands on it except, you know, me and my one friend. And so that's I think the other is like this communion around the book that we come together and we just want the very best thing that can happen to the book. But on the sort of the other sort of more markety, there's a difference between a manuscript and what a book is in the world. The conversation is how do we make your book legible in the world so the widest audience can receive it, so people can understand it? And I think that's something that Noemi, I mean, we everyone is doing wonderful different things, but the thing I'm most proud of that we do as a group is that we're able to really bring books into the world that are legible in ways that speak to the author's gifts and to the the author's desires for what the book is meant to say and what to be. Mm. That's such a like graceful way of articulating the need for legibility. I mean, often I think that when writers of color, especially when we talk about making ourselves legible to a wider audience, It's often kind of framed in terms of like a loss, like what gets lost by making Mm. ourselves like forcing ourselves to be legible to like, how do you how do you navigate that kind of like tension that might come up there? The first thing has to do with just having a really frank conversation of what the gifts of the book are and what the possibilities of the book are and to draw from the book's gifts and build from them in order to. To, to develop the possibilities. One of the books that I took, you know, a while back that there was like, it was a, it was a good book. It had one line. And I was like, if every line could be doing this thing, you can do anything. And so just kind of amplifying out and thinking, well, there's poetics and then there's praxis, right? People have really great ideas, but how do we execute them? That's the, really the conversation. I want this poem to do this. Okay well, why is it not doing this, right? Or how is it already doing part of the thing that you're doing? It's all on the page. It's right there. Um, And so when I think about writing, um, I'm not a dancer by any stretch of the imagination, but I think a lot about how people learn how to dance and that you have to watch somebody's body to learn how to dance. And I feel like there's not that much difference when you're talking about writing is that you have to watch 
a gesture and see a gesture and keep moving the gesture around until it's fluid. And so that's the conversation. And I think all of the editors have in one way or another learned or have a fluency with a kind of translation of like, okay, this is what you want to do. Well, then this is how you do it. But what's always been really important is to honor the vision and the aesthetics of the particular writer and always to build from that. And to me, syntax is like a thumbprint, right? You write the way you write and nobody else syntactically is going to do the same thing. And so it's discerning what are the qualities of that thumbprint is and then also building from that. So the more expansive and fluid someone feels, the more able they are to achieve some of these, you know, visions. I'm making it sound like it's magic and and puppies. It's hard and it can be hard conversations. um, But to me, it's, it's so satisfying to just be in that conversation. I guess the other piece of it is that we've all put ourselves in that place too. I show all of my work to Susie and Jay Michael and Diane Artarian. All of our editors, we all look at each other's work. So it's like, we talk the talk, right? We're just not like, you know, from on high. We also put ourselves on the same line and are the kinds of editors that are willing to put ourselves on the same line in order to achieve the things that we want. What we're saying to an author, what we hope we're saying is like, you're not done yet. You have so much more left. Look at how you're not opening your body yet. Look at the way that you're standing in the way of just something really magic and explosive happening. And oftentimes it's like, you know, stuff that we have left over from grad school or these these ideas that we have of what is going to suit the market as opposed to like, you don't, the market isn't going to tell you what you need to do. You're going to, speaking of Kafka, you're going to tell you what to do. It's such a fruitful and beautiful way of thinking about editing as like, in that kind of like amplification of the gifts rather than sort of like a let's restrict or let's fix or let's, you know, put it into like a shape or something, you know? Um, yeah. That's just, that's just really beautiful. Yeah, it is. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe we could jump into editing B recorder mm-hmm. um, just so like, you know, since we can talk the talk and walk the walk a little bit. One, it's just such an incredible work. Like I remember the first time I read it back when I had the galley, I was like, what the fuck? And like, just like every time I've read it like two or three or four times since it's every time I was like, what the fuck? Like, it's a, like, it's a, it, you know, there are some poems that just like kind of knock your breath out and there's always, you know, the mind is always activated in a new way. Yeah. But you know, those books where like you read it, you read a book and then you're like, I'm a better writer now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, I know it's a good book when I have to stop myself from writing, right? When I'm like right, itching right, right, towards right. my yeah. notebook and like being like, you have a thought. And it's like, girl, stay in somebody else's thought for a while. <laughs> right. Be changed. Um, so anyways, one, praise, geeked. Um, but two, yeah, ends all those magical moments. Can you identify maybe one for um, us and our listeners that you think editing helped? Yeah. Sure. Well, I guess one way is the things that you don't see. And that is at a very late stage, that book I, I did so many revisions. I mean, I just, I have hundreds of files of revisions of that very sort of late in the game. And I I think, I mean, Jeff already had it. I sent it to my friend, Dana Levin, and she went through and she's like, cut out all of the endings. (laughs) I was like, okay, okay. So the, the poems, not all of them, but she was like, you do this thing. And it's like, you sort of double down in this ironic thing. So I, Mm. I went through and I was like, she's totally right. And so I took out every single thing that she did. It was almost every, not every ending, but it was definitely over 70% of them. And they were better. I've never met a revision that wasn't smart 
are worth taking into consideration. So to me, and that's how the book is communal, right? So many hands were laid on it with love and with attention. It's so much better without those endings. I'm so grateful that I put those poems in her hand for her to see that. I guess the other thing that I really worked hard on was the sound because it was so hard to keep the syntax and keep, you know, without punctuation to keep that forward momentum and to also maintain sense. Um, And that just sometimes felt like taking out one word, taking out another word. It was a lot of really like, I want to say line level, but it was like word level where I have to hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it so many times in order to create that fluidity um, all the way through. Amazing. I love the note about the endings because that's the type of edit that teaches you about your poetics, not just about your poems, right? Yeah. Um, And you take that into the rest of the work, right? Now, like, I have certain notes that I'm like, oh, Eric D. Matthews lives in my brain forever when I think about Jaren's, you know? Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, and now, like, I imagine, like, you know, like, every time you have an ending, it's going to be, is Dana Levin going to tell me to cut? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's exactly right. It was was totally life-changing for her to just sort of name what I knew implicitly, and I think that's why you have invite a lot of teachers into your life is sometimes you don't have the language to understand what's not right. And then someone gives you that language. It's also knowing who to ask for what problem, right? And so when, when we're editing with Noemi, sometimes I'll have, I'll just ask a friend, I'll say, I know that you write this particular way when you take a look at this manuscript, you know, it's all hands on deck, you know, we got to support young writers of color. And so I think that's also knowing who is, who do you bring these problems to in order to find the solutions. Hmm. Wow. I love that. The like, who do I know that can fix my roof? Like, who do I know that can fix my title? Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) It's a great tip for editors. Actually, you know what? Um, Mahogany Brown did that for me on my first chat book ever. She read it and she was like, I can read this, but like somebody else would be better. And she called Ocean. That was how I met Ocean Vong. She was like, this is about queer desire in a way that I don't know how to articulate. So you talk to Ocean. And that was like, yeah, it was powerful. That's a great editorial skill, right? The editor does not need to be the final authority on the poem, right? But the editor that sees the work and also knows that what will feed it. And sometimes that's not the editor, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like, yeah. yeah, somebody else's eyes need to be on this. Carmen, do you feel, when do people call you? you if you're not the roof guy like are you the type like what what do you what do you think that you might like the kitchen get called in for (laughs) um I guess I mean I guess I'm sort of because I've been editing for so long I I can wear many hats I'm more of a contractor and so I can say you know what I I, you you need to hire a special tile person for this (laughs) but I can tell you that this is the plumbing you need and this is um, but I think what I'm good at is just sort of stepping away and just saying, clearing away the brush, I guess, is like really getting at like, why not just build around the very best thing you're doing and not hold on to all of this stuff that's B plus C minus, right? Like the idea of expertise is complicated, but when we look at a dancer, what we see is, again, I guess, fluidity. One of the most striking things that ever happened to me when I was a young writer I went to this thing that Juan Felipe Herrera put together. It was at CSU Humboldt. And it was like, you were working with drummers and opera singers. It was like another time. You can't even imagine something like this happening. But there were these great, amazing ballet dancers. And it was this small little venue. And we were watching them, these ballet dancers. And they were so noisy. They were like, (laughs) and you're like, what? (laughs) And you realize, like, of course, they're like doing serious physical shit, right? They're like, 
like carrying each other, but it doesn't occur to you when you see a ballet dancer how much exertion there is involved in their action. And so I think about that with writing is that like we're performing a kind of fluidity and elegance, but there's also this exertion that takes place. That exertion is kind of back-ended, right? It's back-ended in the process of refining and creating sentences that are beautiful. And they don't, it's not about being grammatically correct. It's about being beautiful and rhetorically sound. And so that's the exertion. I think what I, what I like to do is find where's the best use of energy. Why isn't the body activating in the same way throughout a poem? And so it's sort of finding the best moment and then using it to sort of amplify outwards and question, you know, so many of us, we start a poem and it's like, Da, 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 right. And it's like, just go to the right. Like, just go to yeah. the big moment. My dance heart is tickled. I used to dance and I work with dancers a lot. I feel like that's the main like other folk I collaborate with. You know, I think that you, you sneak up, you do the da, 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 because until you learn not to be scared of that da, you're going to need the preparation. Right. I feel like you look at a writer over time. Right. I feel like even reading you, Carmen, you know, like you can see development. Right. Like from Milk and Filth to Cruel Futures to be recorder. Right. It's like, oh, like. Maybe there's less time in between those big moves, right? And then you're able to actually, like you're saying, expend energy on what actually does take bravery at that point, right? So how can you go deeper into that thing? It's like seeing a dancer, right, who can do the like arabesque so easy, who can do all that thing. They do that incredible move, right? Because all that other shit is now child's play, you know? And it's because they know the bodies because I actually don't have to jump that hard to do this. It's because I actually just have to extend a little bit and it feels good. And so now let me do this thing that, truly requires my focus and danger and pushing that line sort of further and further. I think that's the beautiful part about writing is that our body is the mind and it gets to change. And sure, the mind can also, you know, degrade and slow down too. But I don't know. I feel like I've done this a couple of times in the show, but I think about like somebody like Toy Derricott, who I just think is like writing the best poems of her life right now. Right. Um, and if you look at her work, it's like a lesson in that no fear, right. Just going further and further into it, into the move, into the topic. And now it's just like, Watch me get off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and just to build off of that, I think the other thing is conception isn't writing; it's producing. What what writing really is is revising, and revising is thinking through something. And as a teacher, the most exciting moment for me is when a person encounters the experience of finding the thing that they didn't know the poem was about and realizing control is terrible for art. Once we're able to let go of will and control, that's when the most exciting things happen. That's what Keats' negative capability is all about. But we are artists, so we, we're controlling. How do we let ourselves go? We let ourselves go by following what, what's most exciting and what's possible, this intangible possibility that language and poetry offers us. What I love about poetry and how we access that intangible is that it has sound and figure. We have no control of how the sound and figure comes out of our body. But if we let the sound and figure be our guides, that's when really exciting things happen. That's where we're able to let go of our will. Mm-hmm. Oof. Franny, you look, are I'm you just, like me? I'm are you letting, overwhelmed? I'm, I'm just letting it reverberate in me a little bit. <laughs> um, can I ask, was there a moment like that or a thing that you had to let go of in the process of writing B Recorder that you had to kind of you know, release your hand on. So, uh, Denez, uh, you mentioned something about the differences between Milk and Filth and Cruel Futures and, and Be Recorder. And that's definitely like, I love Milk and Filth. I think it's a really strong, figurative, the sentences are really tight, but it's it's tight. 
You know, it feels like, Ugh! I think every book is a question that an artist is asking themselves. It's an investigation. And I, one thing I, I know that I learned from that is how to really control an image system. I learned how to really own a declarative sentence and, you know, it's, it's, punct- there's, you know, it's punctuated to the, you know, to the nth of its life. But then when I worked on Cool Futures, I had to actually write a lot of that book in a short amount of time. There's a poem in uh, Cruel Futures. It's called uh, Oakland Float. Giovanni Singleton had um, told me about doing floats, right? And and she was like, it's incredible. and You got to do it. So I went to Oakland and I did it. And I wrote this poem. And I was like, oh, I'm going to show it to Giovanni. So I, I, I wrote it up and I sent it to her. And then, you know, she's busy and it was taking her time. So I was, but classic me, I'm like a, a compulsive reviser. I was like, da, 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 da. you know, I was revising, 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 revising. And I sent it to her and she's like, I like the first version better. You know, normally I'd be like, well, I need to show it to someone else. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to that voice. This is with City Lights. You know, this is like you know, the bongo drums and we're just going to write whatever and publish whatever. I'm just going to go with a different kind of less controlling, you know, and that was such a moment of like, of just the universe telling me, listen to this and follow this. So I just got softer. The lines got longer. Be Recorder, the poem, it started like at least 10 years ago. The question that I had was because I was so like hanging on to dear life with punctuation, like, well, what is it to write without punctuation? And the other question that I brought to it was, how do questions work rhetorically within a poem? So to bring those, it's kind of like an experiment. I'm going to write a poem in which I don't use punctuation and I ask a lot of questions. And that, you know, the practice of trying to write without punctuation made me realize it's like I, I put on my my caftan instead of my girdle, you know? <laughs> and that was like, I was like, I like this caftan, you know? So that that's really like the evolution that's taken place, you know? Um, and, I, and I hear it in in the in the poems. I like punctuation. I like the music and I like what it adds. And I don't know if I have another poem like Be Recorder in me, but I definitely feel a lot less constricted than I than I did before I started working on it. Huh. As you write more books, as you get older, the vestiges of influence. Well, first of all, I'm still influenced. I don't stop. I'm lucky because as an editor, I get to be influenced. I have, you know, lots of younger people reading my work and, you know, like Susie is such a phenomenal editor and she's, she just has an ear for like the contemporary that has helped me so much. So allowing those new influences, but also you learn what your body can do and you realize that it can do things that you didn't know that it can do. And my body can do these longer, funnier sentences that are a little bit more glib that still draw. Like I always will sound the way I sound, but the way I execute stuff feels more comfortable and and more natural. Is it the kind of difference between like maybe like the younger poets or writers, like a desire to like form a voice as opposed to like, you know, just sort of like being within that voice, I think it comes a little more familiar, whatever that can mean to a writer. Yeah, you know, it's I am an amalgamation of all of the poets that I've ever read, whether I like them or not. But I think what you see with a, a young poet, a developing poet, an early poet, a first book poet, an MFA student, a non-MFA student is their 
picking and picking and picking, and then that becomes the thing, as opposed to the picking and picking becomes the start of the thing that you then sort of shape and say, okay, now this is my special spice. It's learning what your special spice is, right? That's, I think, a really important evolution. Every book that you read, so it's that the ability to like absorb, but also reinvent what influence can do to a book. Do you have any advice for those younger, earlier, more emerging poets who might be like more in that picking bits stage and like having uh, maybe some more trouble finding that special that special spice? Like, yeah, what advice might you give just generally to folks who are in that? I think that nothing is sacred in terms of your own writing, that if you start latching on to a draft, it's almost time for you to do something murderous to it. Because I always tell my students, you know, this isn't the only book you're ever going to write in your life. So whatever it is that you want to hold on to, really ask yourself how important it is to hold on to it. 99.5% of every revision I've done has been the right decision. Whether that poem survives or not, because every revision is a lesson, Um, It might not be the lesson for that poem, but it's definitely going to be a lesson that resounds throughout your, your life. We learn from making mistakes. It's interesting with art how difficult it is to translate that, right? Like we don't want to make mistakes because we receive art and it feels like we look at a painting or we look at a poem in a book and we're like, ah, fuck, man, that's really good. But you don't see like underneath the painting, there's sketches, there's a sketchbook that someone did a thousand drawings before they even started painting on the canvas. And the same with the poem, you don't see the 30, 50, 100 drafts that lie underneath it. And so we think that it has to come out of our body. And when we write a poem and it feels like it looks like a poem that would be in a book or a magazine. We're like, okay, I did it. But that's actually the time where you're like, okay, now I'm going to fuck it up. Now I'm going to cut out the first five lines. And now I'm going to put the ending at the top. Because all of those kinds of radical, aggressive, surprising, destructive things produce new, exciting things that you don't expect. And I mean, not to bring up Robert Frost, but... (laughs) No surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. If there's anything that I think is a maxim that is so important to think about when writing is if you know what you're saying and if you know what you're going to do at the end of the poem, your reader's going to know. There's no surprises. You have to seek out the surprises and the surprises only come from revision. I think there's two types of revision that I maybe try to implore my students. There's like the technical kind, which is you pushing that craft, whatever it means to you, right? Pushing the machine of the poem. But also it's another chance to be vulnerable to being wrong, being vulnerable to whatever emotion might come, right? Like I had one student and I remember her breakthrough because I was just trying to be like, yo, if you still have all the same data that you had when you enter the poem, when you exit it, what is it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, it's not a police report, you know? It's, it's art. The thing that's also exciting about poetry is that it's a place of self-discovery. We come to art to learn about ourselves. You know, make art, enjoy it, be changed by your process of art. And then imagine that the art that you could bring into the world might change someone else. That's the, that's why we make art. It's a gift to a future audience who needs to be changed. If you think about the poems that first gave you goosebumps and, you know, it wasn't someone saying, it's sad when grandmas die or, you know what I mean? Like whatever it is that people often arrive at. And so often you see writers, they didn't necessarily come into that poem that changes our life, knowing that that's where the poem was going to go. Those are the best kinds of poems for us to read. And so those are the poems we should start writing. 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just feels just like the difference between like art and propaganda. Or if you start with the motive in mind of like, I'm going to change the world through this poem, then like it can only ever get to the level of propaganda, which is like good for propaganda, you know? Yeah, <laughs> <But> not, <laughs> for art. Propaganda. not for art. Uh, yeah. Even in titles, right? Cruel Futures, Milk and Filth. Oh, I was so jealous of that title when I first saw that book. Oh, what a, what a, f- I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> Just because my first little manuscript title was like, I forget what it was, but it was like something and filth. And I was like, oh, I didn't think of milk. Oh, that's better. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's, and I think you say it, um, it's a line in um, Be Recorder in one of the smaller poems that you're a poet, like mean and brilliant. And so I think there's this embrace of meanness or of like the like sort of real or like not interested in the hero, some type of narrative, right? That that leans towards cruelty, that leans towards filth, um, this embrace of stuff in your work that I find liberating. Was there somebody, whether a person or a poet, who gave you permission to sort of go towards that edge? And where has meanness, embracing meanness in poetry led you? I guess when I think about, you know, the idea of, of meanness, Milk and Filth really was a book about female antiheroes and the idea of, you know, growing up, good Catholic girl, you know, the idea of being bad was subversive. And so I was always attracted to that as a child. I was like, I do not like being good. I much prefer being bad. And so the poetry that I was drawn to, you know, Anne Sexton is not mean so much as it is, is just like acute you know, without a filter and just will say the things that no one will say. And to me, that's always been the most exciting poetry, including like Alexander Pope. You know what I mean? Like Alexander Pope was kind of like mean and would be sort of a mean girl now. Um, So I think it's also like the person who speaks truth, the child figure, the fool figure speaks the truth, which I think, you know, I often more think of myself as like the fool in poetry, right? Like, wanting to say the thing, saying the thing in a cheeky way so I can get away with saying the thing. I keep saying, I keep thinking Joan Rivers, I because Joan Rivers is also such a major figure in, in Milk and Filth. You know, she has, there's a poem about her. And that's a mean motherfucker. She's mean. <laughs> but she was like, to me, like there was also this kind of like, she was like the first abject female I ever saw on TV, right? Like she was on Johnny Carson and she was just like, talking shit, but also like putting herself on the line in this way that I hadn't seen and I was really attracted to. And so that kind of set me on the course of like, I want to do that. I don't want to be John Rivers and I don't want to be on the Johnny Carson show, but I want to do what she does, like be in the world and just kind of say the things that no one wants to say. Shout out to the Joan Rivers of poetry. Carmen Jimenez. <laughs> yeah, I just don't have like a palatial Versace-like, you know, apartment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not yet. No, I was saying it for Andy. I, no. I was like, I was like, there's a me. I, I think mean femmes are the best femmes, right? Like you want like <laughs> two or three mean femmes on your team, right? Because they are actually oh, the yeah. most like, they're actually the most like loving motherfuckers you know, right? It's just- Exactly. And <laughs> soft. And yeah. soft. And soft. <laughs> Yeah. And soft. And you certainly don't want them, like, not on your team. <laughs> exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, exactly. Okay, so now we are going to play one of my favorite games, which is called Fast Punch, where we're going to give you a rapid-fire list of categories of things, and um, we'll ask you to tell us either, depending on what you decide, um, the best thing of that category or the worst thing in a kind of rapid manner (laughs) so for this 
game. Carmen, do you want to say the best of things or the worst of things? I feel like the best of things feels like the safer pass. Yeah, I think I think it definitely is. Think it is. Yeah, great. Let's do it. Let's do best. Okay. Of okay. Cool. All right. Nez, you want to start? Yes, I will. Okay. All right. Best of your book titles. Um, milk and filth. Wow, great. Best luxurious breakfast. Avocado toast with bacon, Ooh. made by Soam Patel. <laughs> Wow. Another breakfast-related question. Best morning pastry. Uh, does French toast count as a pe- pastry? Yes. Okay, then French toast for sure. Sure. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, best thing to listen to when you're sad? Hmm. Um, gosh. The Smiths, but, you know, the new Smiths, mm-hmm. not the... You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Poetry cover band Smiths. Poetry yeah. cover band Smiths, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, best dairy product. Oh, none. Pass. Lactate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, post lactate. What post lactate? <laughs> strawberry, strawberry Hagen Doss ice cream. Ooh, Ooh good answer. Good <laughs> so, answer. <laughs> um, best kind of pen. Felt tip. Purple. Mm, mm. Best thing that is filthy. God, I don't know. I mean, I mean, um, my filthy thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh man, you win with that one. Um, Best um, kind of bar, milk chocolate. Oh, 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 love it. Yeah, great. Best outside smell. It's in the southwest when it's about to rain. The smell of the earth. But it has to be in the Southwest. Wow. Great. Uh, I guess I, the only one that I've got left is best cookie. My chocolate chip cookie. The wow. ones that I make. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to brag, but yeah. <laughs> you doing some, you doing some, some, some extra to them cookies? Which, 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 I'll which send you? you some. I'll send you some. Send hey. me your address and I'll send you some cookies. Wow. Yes, please. Oh, wow. Amazing. Wow. Um, Carmen Humana Smith, you won the game. You won. <laughs> Yay. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I should have asked quick karaoke song. Well, what That's is okay. your, what is your karaoke song? Well, it depends on the crowd, but my very, I think I have a toss up for the most requested Carmen karaoke, and that's Tyrone by Erica Badu or Proud Mary by Tina Turner. Whoa. Wow. Very different energies, but both require a show woman. Karaoke <laughs> is my game. If I hadn't made it in poetry, I would have been a professional karaoke artist. <laughs> Amazing. Carmen Jimenez Smith, are you ready for our second game? Mm-hmm. This is this versus that. We're going to put two today groups of people in competition with each other. And you tell us who would come out victorious if it was a fight. All right. Remember, remember a fight, physical fight, not who you hold close in your heart, who beats who up. All right. Okay. Okay. All okay. Right. okay. I can do this. Right. I can do this. All right. Cool. So for today's this versus that, in this corner, we have amateur dancers. And in that corner, we have amateur poets. Who wins in a fight? Amateur dancers. Yeah. Yeah. In a fight, in a physical fight. Uh yeah. <laughs> I mean, just on pure muscle and strength. But what about the scrappiness? The scrappiness of that early career poet? Nothing? 
No. I'm sorry. I love you, but I'm a betting woman. Okay. And I'm thinking my money, $20 is going to go with the dancers. Okay. What if it's a bunch of depressed college student, amateur poets versus a bunch of like very energetic and well-trained, like six-year-olds who've been doing ballet for two years. Whoa. I'll give you 10 depressed college poets and 50. <laughs> 50. <laughs> Wait, who you're asking me who wins? Yes. The dancers. The dancers <laughs> always win. Okay. They've got the brawn, they've got the endurance, they've yeah. got the focus. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations, dancers. You won you again. Won, you won the poetry podcast. <laughs> this today. time. Yeah, this time. <laughs> meet me out back. Meet me at AWP. Don't meet me at AWP. Don't meet me at AWP. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't make the dancers come to AWP. It's one of the only places I feel cute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. right, where you look around and be like, you know what? I'm doing okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm an AWP eight. What you talk about? I'm a <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dance conference four. Don't <laughs> yes. yeah. an ML- you know if you're an AWP eight, you're an MLA twelve. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> need to start going to MLA. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> okay, great. Well, All right. um, game number three. Um, we're going to play this versus something else where we'll give you the choice between staying in this world or being transported to an alternate world, um, which we will propose to you. Um, so for this, this versus something else, we have this world, this, or um, a world in which everyone has to publish their first draft along with their final draft whenever they publish a poem. I would like that world. I would like the alternate world. Yeah, because I think it would be like famous people. They really are like us, you know, kind of. (laughs) 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 They do go to Walmart and have to buy toilet paper like the rest of us. So, yes, that's the world I want to be in. Like the price being that like your own first draft. Oh, I don't give a fuck. No, I don't care about that. No, I... Uh uh-uh, uh, I have no pride. Pride is also a very dangerous thing for art, so I'd happily do that. Yeah, I feel you. At least with this one too, I will say you can also like you have proof that it went somewhere. Yeah, exactly. A scarier world would be like, okay, for every poem you publish, you have to publish one that you hoped not to see the light of day. (laughs) Exactly. That's right. That's right. Like a random other draft. Yeah, just a random (laughs) one that you like never took out of your notebook or your notes app. You didn't even like fucking. Yeah, the one that you just X'd out and didn't even save in the docs. (laughs) That's right. But you're in the New Yorker and it's like, boom. And then also turn the page. Here's like this weird one that's just. It's about Justin Bieber. And you're like, yeah. I don't even remember writing. Yeah. Justin Here's Bieber. one I wrote when I was real depressed at 3 a.m. one night. You know, 17 but. years ago. <laughs> Here's my third poem about my dad I wrote when I was 17. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that I would be nice to see first drafts if like that was like the online bonus content or something like i don't know if i'd always want to see the first draft but it would be nice to have the option shout out to uh ben tuckett over at um Grenica. they do backdraft um and yeah ben ben perkett per- perkett or perkert 
per Kurt. It's okay if I'm mispronouncing a white person's name. It's 2021. <laughs> Solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Ben Perkert, um, he does backdraft, which um, he interviews poets um, about a first or somewhere in the draft and then the final version of the poem. And they do this cool slider thing so you can go back and forth. Mm, and I like that. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. But then you talk about the it's like a whole interview series about the actor revision. It's cool. Check it out. I sometimes bring a draft to my students when I'm teaching revision, especially undergraduates, I'll bring a draft and I'll just show them how we'll do it together. I'll say, let's revise this together and we'll just kind of go through it, you know, mm. Wow. because it's just like low stakes. Drafts yeah. are low stakes, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also um, a site called Underbelly that um, Maya Marshall and Marty McConnell run and they, yeah, they ask people to send in like an old draft and then the final and then write just like a little essay. And then there's also... um. Midst? Have y'all seen Midst? It's like a program, like a word processing program that was developed so that you can see as a video a sort of time lapse of how a poem has changed. So you basically you write in it and then edit in it, uh, you know, and then when once you save it, then you can save it as a like dot midst file or whatever, and then it shows a video. Yeah, and so then the the um the journal, like the issue of the journal is just like, you know, 10 of these videos. It's pretty. Oh, that's incredible. Wow. That's so cool. Because that those are the things that make, and it's so critical, right? When you're at that, that emergent stage or like first fall in love with poetry, you need to fall in love with the process, not the product, right? Um, and that is such a tool to fall in love with the making of the thing, not just the made. Oh, totally. Ah. Love it. Um, Carmen Jimenez Smith, thank you so much. Oh, for it was such a joy. Podcast. Such a joy to talk to you today. Where should people look to find your poems and find your work in the world? I mean, you know, Be Recorder is the last thing I feel like I did. I haven't, like I said, I feel like I've been quieted a little bit by this pandemic. I've been doing a little bit of translation, but for the most part, I've just been editing. So I'm excited about the books that Noemi is doing and, and really um, about the authors that I get to work with. So. Shout out to Noemi's um, subscription program, too, y'all. If y'all don't know about that, um, you can sign up for a discount and just get all the books every year. I am a member of that. So do that. That's really, really cool. That's really <laughs> Thank cool. Thank you. Um, Carmen, will you do us the honor of closing us out with one more poem? Sure. And so speaking of, of putting your poems, this is a poem that I shared with my friend Juan Luis Guzman just the other day. And he just moved the sentences around. And so I really, this is, he's changed it and that's it. That's the... That's where we're going to read this poem from. Geography as Swerving. What a risk, stranger. I sent wavelengths to pulse like a heartbeat. You were you late one night against a fire. The could have happened, the almost happened, the did happen. Allegorical and remote, the gold of your North Dakota is scenic as your clavicle swoop. When I rise, it keeps coming back like it was a ceremony, that portent. A gust of desire untwined past like something fluid. Are there rivers in North Dakota? I rose, the best of me. That was Carmen. <laughs> it sure was. <laughs> it sure was. No, I really felt like, I don't know, like seriously, like the other day after we finished that conversation, I literally felt electric and like went and like taught the shit out of those office hours. I was like, yeah, I'm filled with poetry right now because of Carmen. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, literally got smarter as a result of that conversation. Might be a batter bitch. Might have revised myself. (laughs) I love talking to poets about revision. What is one of your favorite revision exercises that you teach or use for yourself? Um, This is one that I use for myself. So, you know, I don't even know if I've taught this one formally in the classroom yet. But one thing I sort of like believe a little bit is that there should be one true thing in every poem. And I don't necessarily mean like biographically true, but I mean like sort of one line or heart that if the rest of the poem fell away, that that would stay. When I'm editing, um, whether I feel like that statement is already there or not, I will kind of just ask myself like eventually like, okay, what is that statement? And if it's in the poem already, then I'll highlight it. And if it's not there, I start asking myself in the poem questions that are helping me sort of dig towards what am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? Eventually, hopefully I get to say what I need to say. And then I can like keep or erase as much of that like question asking and answering as as possible. If you notice, there are a lot of questions in my work. And so sometimes those questions are like a result of me like actually like trying to like think and like get to the next place. If the thing is already there, then I'll do that same sort of question and answering, but after the line to see what else is there, right? Saying that true thing and at first draft or an early draft always sort of signals to me that I had more thinking to do. If that truth came to me so early, why am I still looking at this, right? What else is there to trouble? That one is a little bit more exciting to me because then I get at the bottom of my thoughts and I actually feel like I get to challenge my thinking because I'm no longer in search for the truth, but rather I'm in search from the truth towards something more. So yeah, so those are two things I do, right? Just playing like your own little poetic Q&A. And that's the Danette Smith method. Franny, how about you? Uh, What's a revision process that you either teach or something that you reach towards when you're trying to get deeper into your own work? Have I talked about my exquisite starfish activity on this? No, and I love this name. (laughs) First of all, fuck a corpse. How about starfish? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this is an exercise that I've used now just a few times that I've um, taught in a group setting in order to kind of um, ask questions about voice. Uh, So what we do is we do an exquisite corpse. If you're not familiar with that, everybody has a piece of paper, you write a line, pass it to the right, the person that writes the next line. Um, And then generally speaking, what folks do is fold the paper so that you can only see the line that came just before yours, but you don't know like the whole context of what's come before. So there's a little, you know, it becomes a little improvisational, it becomes a little um, spontaneous and surprising at the end to put it all together. Um, I have my students write like a title and the first line. And then when it comes back to them, then they write the last line. So then when you receive your poem, it's kind of at least it has like the bones of being like your poem. Um, And then we open it up and it's fun to like read those sorts of things out loud. Um, And then what I say, this is the starfish part because a starfish, if they lose one of their limbs, then they can regenerate that limb, right? So what I have them do is circle the line that they feel is most outside of their voice. I ask them to take that out and then write the line the way that they would write it. So then it's a question of like, wait, how do I write? What is the voice that's truest to me? Um, And then I ask them to take that line that they took out and have that be the first line of a poem and then try to write a poem in that voice. So then it also teaches them to like, what do you learn from writing in a way that you wouldn't naturally come to that like sort of feels foreign to you? So I think that it helps do both of these things. 
dig down a little bit deeper in like what you do and what you do well and also like stretch your imagination to see like to what you might learn from going outside of yourself that is so cool oh my god and you have yeah, two exquisite starfish what a wonderful prompt oh, oh i am impressed oh that is thank such a you. good prompt We've talked often about how like uh, imitation is important, but I think it can be so scary to imitate like the masters and stuff like that. And so just imitating a classmate too just feels like very low six, right? Like I, I, I maybe can't imitate Lucille Clifton, but I can imitate this nigga like Cody, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that Cody is always your stand-in for just random boy. <laughs> no, but there's no man named Cody. It's a name you have to shed at 18. <laughs> <laughs> Where you become Codus. Co- <laughs> Codicius. <laughs> Codicius. <laughs> well, shout out to Codicius. If your name is Codicius, please, you know... Um, tweet at us leave, leave a review you know email vs the podcast at gmail.com um but uh yeah let's uh let's thank some folks and get on out of here i would like to thank um group b from cave Canem 2011 like that i think was like one of the weeks of my life i learned the most about revision and i still feel like i'm at that table with those eight black women in my head the voice that it is like my denez's revision voice like is at that table and even though i've learned so much it just kind of has the tone i'm there when i'm revising i'm at that table with those women learning about how to make a poem sharper um so just thank y'all thank y'all for that magical week i still feel affected by it to this day Oh, I love that. I want to thank folks at Kundiman too, but um, maybe I'll just thank like the faculty at Kundiman that have been there during the two times I've been able to go to the retreats. Um, so that includes Jess Winder, Bolina, and Don Miche, and Giles Lee, and Lee Herrick, and uh, some other folks who now I, I are not are have left my brain, but um, just like all past and future faculty of Kundiman, thank you. Um, we also want to thank Idami Noriega and Isabel Blancas of the Poetry Foundation. We want to thank our producer, Daniel Kisslinger, who has to comb through a lot of tape of us saying things that don't end up on the show. Uh, we also want to thank Post Loudness. Thank you to all of you all for continuing to listen to us here in Season 5, Staying Alive. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Podcast. And if this is coming out in time, make sure you vote for us on the Webbies. Oh, yeah. Go to our Twitter. Yeah, you can go to our Twitter at Podcast and find the link for that. But we are nominated next to like Oprah's Book Club and um, um, keep it with Ira and them. And those are like podcasts that like I listen to. So I'm like, whoa, it's yeah, right. <laughs> <That's> crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you, Webbies, for the nom. We're glad to be the Olivia Lux. We are so nice and so liked, and we're not going to win. <laughs> you know? We're not going <laughs> to win, but it's great that we're no, there. Vote for us, though. Vote for us. <laughs> yeah, Definitely vote for us. Vote for us. Definitely for sure. vote for us. You know, we would love to be a lovely fifth alternate. Uh, but no, but thank y'all. Love y'all. Be safe. We'll see you in another two weeks with another great poet. Bye. Bye.